Hello, my name's Alex Clark and welcome to the Vintage Podcast. Today we have a real treat in store. I'm going to be joined by Roddy Doyle, author of The Commitments, The Snapper, The Guts and most latterly, Smile. so much for joining us. I know you've got a sort of whistle-stop tour yeah, of yeah, London at the uh, minute. London and the UK, are you going around and about the place? Yeah, Glasgow, Liverpool and here in London, yeah, so it's a uh, rock and roll. I have a t-shirt <laughs> with the three cities <laughs> written on the back and then Dublin, which will be my final destination. But you uh, don't have an Friday. amazing coach. Where's your tour bus? It's outside, actually. It's outside. <laughs> my band is uh, is resting. Yeah. yeah, fully fitted with, with M&Ms of a particular colour, all that sort a of thing. Snooker table, yeah. yes. uh, a sauna, yeah. Actually, I have to say you've arrived with absolutely no rider. I'm a little disappointed. No. But, but never mind. It is one of those, those things that you, one just inextricably links you with music. Yeah. And, of course, the minute I saw this book, I thought, smile. That yeah. immediately takes me into music. It actually refers to lots of different things, but yes. just the title is obviously teasing and a little ambiguous. Yes. You're good at titles, actually. I'm not. In fact, I actually... Um, the Snapper, for example, was my brother's idea. He used to refer to babies as snappers. And uh, I, in the back of my mind, I remember when I was writing the book, we're going back nearly 30 years, thinking what was the name Shane my brother used to call babies and I um, I then went looking for his phone number we're talking a long long time before uh, email or even mobile phones and I was living in a bed sit so I you know, went down to the pay phone down in the hall and had enough money he was working in Limerick <laughs> luckily what a rare thing he was in that evening I was, what was it you called babies and he said snappers and that the, ah, the snapper that's the title for the book I was nearly finished at that stage, you know, and um, Paddy Clark, ha, 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 I delivered the manuscript with no title. Really? Yeah, yeah. And how did it come about? Because it is, that is an unusual title. Again, I uh, got a phone call from Dan Franklin saying they, they, he'd read it, they loved it, they wanted to put it in their next catalogue, but, you know, could we come up with a title? So I think between the two of us, we very quickly came up with one, yeah. I must say, I like the guts. Uh, Paula Spencer is Paula Spencer because I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> the guts is my own. There and you go. The guts was the guts from the very beginning. Often, I could be writing on a novel for years, and the file is called novel. Yeah. You know, and this one for a long time, I was asked to contribute to an Irish uh, special Irish edition of Granta, and I was working on the novel, and they, um, I took out a piece, and decided to call the extract "Smile" after I'd sent it to them, and then it just struck me, well, that's a good name for the whole book. Mm-hmm. So again, I, I, if you like, owned the title for about six months before I finished the book and I was working on the book on and off for four years so but titles don't come easily to me at all you see there there you have it from the reader's point of view they seem to as in (laughs) as indeed does your style of writing because um throughout your your writing life dialogue has been your big thing not your only thing but it's been your big thing yeah and I think that I suppose not accidental as such, but it wasn't. It wasn't altogether conscious, perhaps I would say, because I decided to write a book about a bunch of young people forming a band. 
And I was wondering, you know, what sort of a band will it be? And we're going back to 1986 here. So will it be three young men like The Jam, perhaps? Or will it be, you know, four young men like, you know, uh, The Smiths? Or will it be, you know, four young men and a woman? You know, because, you know, that was a rare enough event. It, was, yeah. it certainly had never occurred to me it'll be four young women because, you know, other than The Bangles, I think, another, uh, they did, they, that, that, if you like, configuration didn't exist. Mm. So I was listening to a lot of soul music at the time, and then I thought, well, it'd be a big band. That'd be great, you know, loads of them. And I, I thought back to the specials who had uh, Rico, Rico Rodriguez, the trombone player, who was so much older than the rest of them. <coughs> and just looked visually arresting when they were, you know, when they were on TV or when I saw them live. And I thought it'd be great to have an older member to the band. And you couldn't do that with the jam. No, you, you couldn't. Know. They needed to be angry young men from Woking, didn't oh, they? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. So it was, you know, that gave me the opportunity to bring in the elder character. Um, and this was Joey the Lips, Joey you know. The Lips. And then also I thought, well, backing vocalists, you know, all the great bands, if these soul bands had backing vocalists and great, you know, the Supremes would go into a studio and work with Marvin Gaye or whatever. And so I thought, well, you know, we'll have at least three women in the band. The band got bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and then the challenge was how to present them, you know. And I didn't want to have, you know, I didn't want to write out for myself a list of their physical characteristics because that was just, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I just thought it's very limiting and very tedious. So I um, quite early on had them talking, you know. And the challenge was then how to make, you know, separate them really, how mm. to make it reasonably clear that... Uh, one character was talking and not one of the other eight or nine. So it ended up being a book largely of lyrics and dialogue. Yeah. And uh, somehow or other, I by the end of finishing the book, I had my style, really, you know. And uh, ever since then, I've been trying to get away from it. Or not get away from <laughs> it, but, you know, not to be hemmed in by it. But I do think that there's no better way to get a character alive than to actually either get him or her talking or to have him or her narrate the novel. Yes, and in this case, you have returned to something that's been a real feature of recent books, the pub, which, of yeah. course, is the arena for dialogue, for talk. Well, yeah, you know, in a mythical way, yeah. I mean, you can go into pubs, uh, as I have been in Dublin, and, uh, you know, there'll be four or five people and no one talking to the other so it's not a guarantee no more than music is you know mm. you know people have this notion that every pub you go into there'll be a fiddle player in the corner mm. and the wit and repartee will be worth <laughs> recording for posterity that isn't the reality not the case but it's a great place for meeting i mean women are better i think at finding alternative places to meet and they're quite comfortable going into each other's homes i think although i suppose there is a certain anxiety about that as well you know when a group of women are meeting in anybody's house a sort of social anxiety yes and you leave that behind you actually in a pub don't yeah, you go into a, a pub naked space. really yeah, yeah it's a neutral space so men are i think are better at meeting in that neutral space yeah. i'm very very close to a group of friends and i haven't been in one of their houses in years we had around we were all we all hit 50 at the same time nearly 10 years ago and uh, we all went around to each other's houses and had dinner, you know, as the birthdays. And, you know, haven't been in their houses since. We meet in the pub. And did it radically alter the nature of the encounter? I suppose a 50th birthday party is a celebratory thing, a different thing in any well, we case. we had our wives with us. OK, so it became so, a different sort of thing. Yeah, it was a different kind of different kind of conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah of course. Good, good fun, you know, but different. Yeah. Your protagonist in, in uh, Smile is actually going to the pub 
in order not to speak to anyone and then has that terrible thing of being spoken to unbidden. Yeah, well, there's, uh, there are two things at work there. He's looking at the world of the pub and would like to get in there. You know, he's, mm. he's moved back to this location after having been away for about 30 years. He planted himself somewhere else across the river and into a different class, I suppose, mm. and into a different culture. And uh, didn't come back, particularly after his mother died, literally didn't come back. And now he is back on the edge of this area that he used to live in. And he's looking at, you know, he's looking at men who are at ease with one another. And he's wondering if he would be like that had he stayed. And he'd like to somehow or other, you know, move closer to them, to feel the affability, to feel the the ease that they mm. seem to feel, the, to understand the shorthand, if you like, the... the the jokes and things like that make them easily laugh. And at the same time, he doesn't want to be confronted by anybody, and he is. And he is inst- really quickly in the book. Yeah, I mean, yeah, immediately. Immediately, almost, yeah, this fella really. knows him, yeah. and he doesn't know him back. Yeah, this him large, back. imposing, boorish uh, kind of loud man plants himself in front of him and announces that they were in school together. Mm. And Victor, It's kind of your worst nightmare, isn't it? No, there are far worse. <laughs> it's kind of my uh, worst nightmare. Yeah, yeah. That might be because I'm an only child. I can't imagine somebody coming in on my <laughs> yeah, space yeah, like that. No, Awful. No, believe me, there are. You know, in the <laughs> list of worst nightmares, it's a dream come okay, true. All right. You know, <laughs> but it is. It, it's very unsettling for him because he can't remember this fellow. Mm. He can't remember him at all, and he, you know, a memory is always selective, of course. But uh, then the fellow mentions that he had a sister, and he remembers the sister, mm. or he seems to remember the sister. And fancying the sister, for want of a better word. It seems an odd thing for, you know, a man in his middle 50s, as Victor is, the word fancying. But he remembers when the word was the right word. Yeah. So, in a way, he accepts that Fitzpatrick was in his class in school. And uh, it brings memories. Almost immediately, Fitzpatrick refers to something. One of the Christian brothers, again, the word fancy comes up. And yeah. Uh, the Christian brother had um, behaved inappropriately, shall we say, or um, had uh, with uh, to and with Victor. So uh, it's a it's an unwelcome, very very unwelcome memory and intrusion. You were going into uh, a different world there, weren't you? You start to recreate this world of the Christian brothers' school, yeah. which was your experience. Yeah, also, no, wasn't it's it? very, you, were, you, you know, yeah. I mean, <sighs> strange. Looking back on it, I think having been a teacher myself and then having seen my children go to school and actually enjoy school and, you know, in primary school referring to their teachers by their first names and uh, actually staying in touch with people they went to school with and speaking fondly of it, you know. Not your experience? Not really, no. Primary school, yes, it was a state school run by very enthusiastic I would imagine uh, men they were all men it was a boys school and uh, you know when you're that age when you're eight or nine all men are men they don't have age really unless they're ancient so they were all men but I'd imagine they were all quite young Mm -hmm. you know and uh, it was great it was very very good I mean 54 boys in the class and I visited it recently and I was very happy walking in the door Mm -hmm. and the corridor was the exact same as I recalled it the tiles were beautiful really and it's one it's something you'd carry for the rest of your life the tiles in that school and they were all you know it was intact you know and there was a photograph of our class up on the wall from and we left in 1951 and this photograph would have been I imagine about 1969 or so 
and there were 54 boys, you know. It's, it's incredible it's to think of. It's like the population of a small town yeah. lined up. And uh, then I went to the Christian Brothers, you know, up the road. The big adventure, leaving primary school into secondary school. And it was an entirely different world. It was very violent at one level. Um, do you mean in the sense of between the boys or do you mean corporal punishment? Corporal or? punishment, which was legal, but mm. was meted out with an enthusiasm and a vigour that was way beyond the call of duty, shall we say. You know, yeah. I remember being um, slapped or beaten by a, uh, a teacher who wasn't one of my teachers. He looked in the door of our classroom and saw five, five I think it was four or five of us, as we say, messing, doing mm. nothing, really. Mm. You know, none of his business, I would say, as an ex-teacher myself. But he hauled us out, literally hauled us out into the corridor and beat us with a leather strap on the hands. He had they, he carried this leather strap, as a lot of them did. And I thought I was being clever by going to the back of the queue, thinking he'd be exhausted by the time he got to me because he was putting an awful lot of effort into it. This was his, almost like his daily exercise. Uh, but he didn't he, when he got to me. And, uh, you know... There was, he was sweating, he was perspiring, and his sweat landed on me as he was beating me, you know. And uh, when I went back into the classroom, the one thing I was determined not to do was to cry. Mm. It was really important not to cry, and I didn't. And I was really kind of pleased with myself at that point, but I was in agony, I was really in pain. And the desk had metal legs, and I held the metal legs, you know, and they, they, my hands were sweating for literally hours afterwards. And trying to hold a pen was almost an impossibility for a while. And this was deemed appropriate and reasonable yeah. punishment for nothing in particular. Yeah. If you asked me what was I doing, nothing. Really, Just kid nothing. stuff. Just being a 15-year-old boy yeah. at that stage. So luckily that didn't happen to me too often, but I witnessed it again and again and again. And more, more awful was the sheer lack of joy in the place. You know, the Laughter wasn't foreign at all. There was an awful lot of laughter, largely savage laughter. But um, friendship, then, if you if you make friends in that sort of environment, you know, it's it, it's uh, you're sharing this lunacy, you know, and it was often very very funny. And my closest friends are men who are, you know, I was in that room with. And uh, uh, when I was thirteen, I was only a few months in the school. Christian brother said to me in front of all the other boys, uh, "Roddy Doyle, I can never resist your smile." The line that is repeated. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the memory hasn't haunted me, not at all, but it's been there, yeah. consistent. Yeah. If a memory can have a camera angle, the camera angle has been the exact same for the last 46 years or so. You know, you absolutely remember that I moment. Do. It's kind of burned into you. I do. Because it and made something special of you then. You were... I got unwanted attention yeah. from yeah. him, first of all. Yes. I would imagine he was in his late 30s. I'm low, I don't know. But he was a Christian brother, you know, uh, wearing the soutane, you know, the black mm. soutane. And he said it to me, it was, it, it was flirtatious. I wouldn't have known that word back then, but it was flirtatious in a way. You uh, knew just, something was off, though. Oh, absolutely, Absolutely, yeah. you yeah. wouldn't have remembered it. Yeah, mm. at 13, if a woman in her late 30s had said it to mm. me, it would have been bizarre, but at least it would have, somehow or other, you know, the, the lads after the bell went would have been saying, oh, she fancies you, mm. you know, she fancies you. But in this case, he fancies you. The word gay didn't exist. It wasn't in the air back then, as we understand it now. Again, we're going back nearly half a century in Ireland. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was the queer, the homo. Uh, every time that man was in the room, I'd get a dig in the back, you know, smile at him, smile at him, tell him we don't want homework, mm -hmm. tell him we don't mm -hmm. want homework. Yes, you so became the emissary. 
as as Victor does. You became the person who could yeah. get round now, somebody. To be clear, the man never laid a hand on me and never told me to stay back after class. There was nothing. There were no consequences mm. like that. And he wasn't the worst of them at all. He liked his subject, you know. He was he wasn't a bad teacher. He disappeared in the middle of an academic year. Then a few years later, don't know why. The brothers were often shifted and moved, mm. you know. Mm. And he wasn't the worst. There was another brother who used to keep people back to wrestle. He'd teach them the rudiments of wrestling. And uh, he never kept me back. And he never kept my closest friends back. But we were all aware that this was not, this was not martial arts. Did you arts. talk about it? We did. We did, yeah. But we never brought it home. You never, ever told your parents? Or no. And this siblings. man, I mean, we were talking about it relatively recently because I gave friends and other people proofs of the book to read just mm. to see what they felt about it. And uh, we were all talking about it, and he said he, the, the guy knew his victims. He knew the ones that wouldn't go home and tell their mothers or fathers. There was either something going on in the house or something with them personally. And uh, we were, there was once in the pub, quite recently, talking to two men who were in the room when this, funnily enough, these two men, my closest friends, were in the room when the brother said that to me. Mm. They don't remember it, they don't wow. recall it. They don't doubt it, but they don't recall it. Because, of course, he didn't, didn't say it to them. It didn't happen to them, yeah. 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 Um, Rudy, how angry do you feel now, if anger is indeed the right word? I don't. You don't? I don't at all. There are times when I do. I suppose, I when I was 17, and that's going back, you know, again, what, more than 40 years, I decided I didn't believe in God. I was an atheist. Most places now, no big deal, who cares? You know, but then it was... A bit of a deal, shall we say. Mm, mm. Had to tell my parents. Would you stop going to church? You I wouldn't just stopped go to church. going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just fundamentally didn't believe it, you know. So I told my parents. In a lot of cases, people wouldn't have told their parents, but I did. And they were, in their own way, devout Catholics. And we argued it out, and they tried to persuade me to go. And I think I might have gone back once or twice, and then so no, it's not for me. So they accepted it, you know, as, you know, none of my siblings are Catholics at all. None of us believe. Mm. And my parents were, they readily, if you like, reluctantly but readily, if that's possible, accepted it and were fine with it. But all through my working life in the teacher, in a multi-denominational school almost, I had to al always assert the fact that I wasn't Catholic, that I didn't have religion. Uh, myself and my wife got married in the registry office because neither of us had religion. We wanted to get married in the registry office anyway. But we had to get married on a Friday because the registry office didn't open on Saturdays, you know, yeah. because demand wasn't there, shall we say. It was a tiny little office in a solicitor's, uh, yeah. a gift, some political gift, presumably. You were a real rarity, in other words. Relatively, not yeah. not freakish, if you like. But you know, when we came out after the after the marriage, which lasted five or ten minutes, there was a, there was another couple waiting to go in, and there was another couple down the street, presumably waiting to go in after that. So it was a mm. bit like an airport that had way more planes waiting to land. <laughs> so eventually, now my brother got married in the registry office. Some you know, quite a quite a while after that, and there's a beautiful registry office now that seems to me I think it's like open twenty four hours a day. But it was really quite much better, much better, much more of an occasion. Um, so all these things. And then very recently there was a big argument about the new maternity hospital, National Maternity Hospital in Ireland, which uh, was to be controlled by, you know, to be owned by the Sisters of Charity. And, you know, their behaviour with the, uh, the, the, the mother the and child mothers. scheme, yeah. you know, it was just obscene. 
really, really obscene. And there was a headline, uh, there was a big argument about it, who owned the land, who was to manage the place, would, you know, given we're having an, a, a, a referendum next year about, you know, abortion, you know, what was going to happen, really. So there's a headline only a few days ago, I think it might have been the day I left Ireland on, you know, just three days ago, uh, the state will own, the state will own new maternity hospital. Mm. And it's kind of a boring headline in some ways. And you would think, yeah, isn't that the way it should be? But it would it made me really happy because it's the first time I've seen that really in a big way where the state has accepted responsibility for its citizens in that way and hasn't allowed the Catholic Church or some other organisation to control it. So it's a wonderful, you know... It's a real assertion of yeah, secular statehood. It's a long time statehood. coming, but I'm yeah. delighted I saw it. Yeah. really delighted I saw it. And the same with the same-sex marriage referendum a few years ago, which was overwhelmingly passed. I think I've spoken to men my own age and women, but largely men, because I think it's a it's a feeling we have a lot of us that when we all and you know certainly everybody I know have voted in favour of the uh, the referendum, we were in some part at least apologising, apologising for colluding somehow. You know, I was a thirteen-year-old boy when I was, if you like spotted by this Christian brother. Mm. But years later, so, you know, a, a teacher in the classroom uh, picking on a boy with a stammer and mocking him, uh, Trump-like, you know, mocking him. And we laughed. And we laughed because we were relieved that he wasn't homing in on us. But in a way, we colluded, you know. Yeah. And I would like to think, you know, well, it's no point in me liking to think because it didn't happen. But if I'd been 17, really, I wish I could have stood up and said, stop that. Now, I'd have been expelled. You know, I'd have mm. been expelled. So my education would have been interrupted. So you, maybe I'd have gone somewhere But you somewhere would have else. done the right thing. You would I'd have done the right thing. Stood up. And it's easy. You see, the thing is, I can't imagine myself really as a 13-year-old. I can't. No, no, I can't no. relive it. And I can't None imagine myself. It's easier somehow to imagine myself as a 17-year-old. And I'd like to think certainly as a 59-year-old, I wouldn't tolerate it. But, uh, so there's a lot of guilt, in a way. And somebody was at superfluous, not necessary, but a lot of us would feel it. Not, we're not, if you like, we're not waking up screaming or anything like that, but it does feel a bit like unfinished business. It feels so something you carried. Yeah, so yeah. that's what, one reason at least, not, the, not by any means the only reason, but it's one reason at least why a lot of people my age and... Uh, went into the polling booth and voted that way yeah. and felt so happy when the result was so overwhelming. It wasn't just about the right of gay people to get married. It was it was more than that. It was saying, uh, in many ways, we own the state now. Yeah. We will decide and we're, and we're the sorry, way people can live. We're sorry it took so yeah. long. Yeah. Well, what a treat that was. That was such a pleasure to talk to Roddy. And as you can tell... He's not difficult to get a good conversation out of. And particularly good news for me because I'm going to be interviewing him again at the Manchester Literature Festival on the 8th of October. If that's in any way local to you, please do come along. We'd love to see you. Really hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. Do leave us a review on iTunes and there's a couple of copies of Roddy Doyle's Smile for those who do. Until next time. <laughs>